Good evening to you, church. Peace be with you all. I invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 6 till the end of the chapter. Know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we once again have come to worship you. We thank you for the promise that you abide and you dwell on the praises of your people. Lord, we thank you for the reminder today that we belong to you, that you dwell in your people. And Lord, we just ask and pray that your spirit would be at work in us to open up our spiritual eyes, minds, and hearts to see and understand and to see the beauty of Jesus. Father, we pray that you would be glorified among us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, there's, this, there's this story in 2 Kings about Elisha and a servant. Uh, about Elisha and his servant, there's a Syrian army that surrounded uh, a city in Israel named Dothan, and that's where Elisha was at that moment. And the servant wakes up, he goes outside on the porch, and he looks, and there's a powerful army all around him. And what is he and the old man going to do against such a force? So he turns to Elisha, he is afraid, and he says, what shall we do? Elisha, you can imagine, this man, calm, cool, collected, there's no panic. He tells him, don't be afraid. He's not phased by what is going on. And Elisha prays so that the servant may see and understand what Elisha sees and understands. That God would open his eyes, and God opens the eyes of the servant, and he sees the spiritual realm. He sees an army that is far greater than the Syrian army. There was horses and chariots of fire. This army is 
unseen to everyone else except to Elisha and the servant. They are there to fight on behalf of the man of God. And you can imagine the servant now, all fear is gone in a moment. He saw what is actually going on. And this is important. Elisha got the servant to see and understand how things truly are. And all of a sudden, this fear-inducing threat, it became nothing. Seeing the spiritual realm, seeing what's really happening, this big threat that he was afraid of all of a sudden is gone. A similar thing is happening in the Corinthian church. They're up against a culture that is at odds with the church. They are also at odds with the message of the gospel. They are enemies of the gospel. And so the church has begun to compromise with the culture in order to be more attractive to them. And like Elisha, Paul is trying to get the Corinthian church to see and understand how things truly are. That not everything is as they think it is. Paul is showing them that they should not be dismayed or afraid of what the culture and the world around them is doing. And throughout this letter, Paul lays out two ways of living, two ways of seeing and understanding the world around us. The first way is the natural or the human way, as Paul would put it, the natural way. Here, the cross of Jesus is foolishness. The gospel is folly. It makes no sense. Christian living, obedience to Christ is something to be ashamed of. Popularity, significance, status are all things to be desired or worshipped. Gain at the cost of others is the way forward. Public perception, public opinion is valuable. Appearance is everything, especially how we appear to people. That's one way to see and understand the world. Paul calls this way the wisdom of man. This is to operate according to the wisdom of this age, the wisdom of the world. That's how the world lives. And if we are honest, even for us today, this way is the easier way to live, even as Christians. We can say that this is the default way that humans live in the natural state because this is how the culture around us lives and operates. And it's easy to go cruise control and drift alongside with it. And this natural human way is not only the way of our culture, but it is also the way of our sinful hearts. Our flesh would rather have us live this way. That's why Paul calls it the natural. 
or the fleshly way to live. But there is another way, which is the second way. Paul shows us uh, that there is another way to see and understand the world that we live in. He calls it the spiritual or the wisdom of God. It is the way of the gospel and of the cross. And it appears foolish and weak. It's unattractive, even repulsive to the world. It's spiritual, not natural, because it goes against our culture and against the way of our natural and sinful hearts. But it is the wisdom of God. These are the two ways to see and understand the world around us. Two different categories that Paul continuously continues to describe throughout our study, throughout these chapters. And the issue in the Corinthian church is that they have, be, they, they have been seeing, they have been looking at the, at the world, at their situation, through fleshly eyes. They are living according to the natural way. And they're beginning to organize their church in such a way. And so, outside in Corinth, the culture around them is divided into groups of favorite sophists, favorite teachers, or schools of thought. And so, the Corinthian church is adopting that, and they are dividing themselves amongst them, among themselves into their favorite teachers. We see that they want their teachers to resemble the wisdom and the sophistry of the world around them. And so they are trying to get eloquent teachers. This means stepping away from the gospel. This means stepping away from the cross of Christ, since it is foolishness to the world. And this, of course, brought horrible fruit. As Paul says, there's jealousy, there's strife, there's division, there's quarreling in the church. They have chosen the fleshly way and not the spiritual way, and the fruit they bear is not spiritual, but fleshly. And this all happened because they are living, seeing, and understanding the world around them in the natural and not spiritual way. We have a friend trying to make his way in here. And so just like Elisha opened the eyes of his servant to see the chariots of fire, Paul's goal is so that the Corinthian church would understand that the spiritual way, God's wisdom is far better than the wisdom of this world. And he does this by resetting their focus back on Christ. In chapter 1, Paul defends the cross. He tells them that it is the power of Christ. The cross is the power of Christ. If you distance yourself from the cross, as ugly and as foolish as it seems to the world, if you distance yourself from it, you are emptying it of its power. They have 
experienced this power. Their sin has been forgiven. The power of death, the power of sin is no longer over them. It has been defeated. They, have, they are reconciled to God. They are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And all of these blessings, they have come to the Corinthian church. All these assurances and promises of God have come to the Corinthian church through the cross. And so if you are ashamed of the cross and reject it because it's folly to the world, you reject its power and you reject its blessings. In chapter 2, Paul shows them there is power in the message of the cross. The gospel preached is the very thing that saved them. And their continuing of preaching the gospel is the only thing that can save others. It's the only thing that is powerful to save sinners and bring them to Christ. Eloquence, wisdom of man, beautiful speech, worldly tactics and gimmicks, they may fill the seats, but they cannot save. Only the power of God through the preached message of the cross can save and transfer us from darkness into the kingdom of light. In chapter 2, Paul tells them, do not be ashamed of the message of the cross. And in chapter 3, Paul gets more practical. He shows them and he shows us how the power of the cross orders and aligns the life of the church. Particularly, how the church should view its leaders. And the Corinthians, they're clearly confused about this. They are divided. And the division is over leadership and over style of teaching. They are identifying with certain teachers and are saying, I follow this man, I like him. The way he preaches suits me. I resonate with it. Therefore, I belong to him. I follow him. Paul says in verse 3 that this is a very fleshly way of thinking and seeing. It's the natural and not the spiritual way. Of course, church leaders, faithful pastors, deacons, and teachers are God's gift to the church. This gift is good, but the Corinthian church is using the gift in a wrong way. And so Paul has to show them what is the proper place of leadership within the church and how the Corinthians should regard church leaders. And as Paul explains this, there is one fact that he wants us to understand and never, ever forget. It's the resounding theme of chapter 3. It's the fact that we are Christ's, that we belong to Christ. And in our text today, Paul will emphasize this and unpackage this even more. This truth is the most important thing about God's people. There's nothing more important about Christians and God's people than the fact that they belong to Christ. They belong to God. They are his. 
Three times Paul explicitly says this in chapter 3. In verse 9, he says, you are God's field. You are God's building. In our text today, verse 16, he says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Verse 23, he says, and you are Christ's. The power of the cross, God saving sinners through the preached message of the cross inevitably results in the fact that those who believed and are saved by the gospel now belong to Christ. Every year I try, I try to uh, read through the whole entire Bible. Sometimes pushes me into next year, February or so. Um, but at this point in the year, I'm finishing up with numbers. And there's this one clear point that was just like so obvious this time around. I'm like, wow, this is, this is a major theme throughout the first, uh, throughout Torah, especially throughout the last three, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomies. Over and over, God says to his people, I saved you. I brought you out of slavery. I've rescued you from Pharaoh by my strong hand. I redeemed you. And he says, now you are mine. You belong to me. Therefore, worship and serve me. God did not rescue them so that they would belong to themselves. God did not rescue them so that they would be autonomous, doing whatever they want. Every time they tried to do that, it was an utter failure. It ended very badly. We see that they did not belong to their great leader, Moses. They did not belong to Aaron. They belong to God because God brought them out powerfully from Egypt. He saved them. He rescued them. And this is a foreshadow of what God will do for all nations, saving them not just from Pharaoh, not just from slavery to a physical king and kingdom, but saving us from the kingdom of darkness, from slavery to sin, from the sting of death, from eternal destruction. This is a foreshadow that God will redeem all nations, all people through Christ to himself. That's exactly what Paul is getting at here. And he gives them two examples. As Alex preached last week, we, he, he, he broke those examples apart. Paul uses two analogies to show how the church functions and to whom it belongs. He uses the example of a garden and a building. In both of these analogies, the leaders, they have a job, they have a responsibility. They plant they water, they build, but the outcome, the actual growth 
It comes from God. And not only that, but Paul makes it clear that both the field and the building, they belong to God and leaders are simply laborers. Paul continues and says that there will be a day of reckoning when every laborer will give an account of how they built and managed what God has entrusted to them. The work will be tested by trial and by fire, and some will survive. Their buildings will not burn down, and they will receive a reward. Others' work will be burnt up. And the difference will be in the material used. Some chose the easy way, the fast way. They grabbed some straw, some, some hay, some wood, materials that are easy uh, to get and easy to build with. But they do not stand the test of fire. Others will take time. They will build with precious stones. Patiently, carefully, hewing, shaping. Marble or other precious materials, building structure, structures that will stand the test of time and trial. And Paul's point in these examples is clear. He's showing them the proper way to regard leaders and who they really belong to. He says, you don't belong to the leader, church. Just like Israel did not belong to Moses, even though he was a great leader. Church, you belong to Jesus. He redeemed you. He purchased you. You are his. And the leaders, they are God's stewards, God's laborers who will give an account for how they led, built, and cared for the church of Jesus. They are not celebrities to idolize. They are not to be even praised, but to be encouraged. And it's not up to the leaders to choose how and what to build. It's not up to them to build a building that they desire and that they want. They are to follow God's building plan revealed in his word. Church, this is essential for us to understand. It's essential for every Christian and every church to understand that we, that you, belong to Christ. Man is fickle. Man is sinful. Men fail. The best of man will fail. Therefore, it is foolish to idolize, identify with men. Our faith, our trust, our hope must be fully placed in Christ. And Christ never wavers. He never fails. Jesus never ceases to love, to care, to hold, to sustain his church and his people. Jesus never changes. He does not change his mind. What he said in his word, what he declared about himself, what he promised to you is true. And he's the only one who proved his eternal commitment to you, church. By dying in your place, by taking the punishment we deserved, 
so that you would never have to see the wrath of God. He did this with his life. He proved his commitment to you already. And so a faithful church leader is to point the church, is to shepherd the church to Christ and not to themselves. They're not there to build a platform for themselves, but they are to constantly point the people of God to Jesus, whom they are to worship and honor and praise. As Paul makes this point, in verse 16, he gives a very stern warning. If you think about these these words in verse 16 and 17, this is a stern warning. He switches his attention from leaders who build God's building to leaders who do the opposite. They destroy God's building. These are the leaders who, instead of caring for God's garden, they trample upon it. Leaders who take advantage of the church for their own gain. And this warning is not just for the leaders. But this is also for the church as a whole to be careful of these types of leaders. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. The word you in the phrase you are God's temple is plural. Paul is speaking to the church as a whole. They collectively, we collectively, the church around the world collectively belongs to God. It is God's temple that he inhabits. And in verse 16, Paul deepens our understanding of belonging to God. The church is not something, is not only something that Jesus has redeemed, and now she is his. He purchased her, and now she is his. It's not the only way that we belong to him. There's an even deeper sense of belonging. The church is God's temple in which he dwells. This is much more intimate, much closer. For example, there's a great difference in the way my car belongs to me or the way my wife belongs to me and the way I belong to her. Completely different. One is very transactional. The other one is intimate, relational. There's a commitment there. And the way the church belongs to God is far greater than even how spouses belong to each other. This is how much God loves and cherishes his church. He redeemed her from her sin. And he is not ashamed of dwelling making her a dwelling place for himself. 
Paul's like, don't you know this? Don't you get this? Don't you understand this Corinthian church? And why does Paul expect the church to know and get this truth? Why is he like, come on, don't you understand this? Why is he making this a point? Because this truth that we belong to Jesus and that he indwells his people should be the most dear and beloved truth of the church. And this truth would protect the church from throwing itself at other men. Essentially, that's what the Corinthians are doing. By following, idolizing, identifying themselves with other teachers and saying, I belong to Paul, to Cephas, to Apollos, they forget about who they really belong to. They're throwing themselves at good men, like Paul, Apollos, and Cephas. And because they are good men, they are telling the church, whoa, this is not how it should be. You do not belong to us. This is why Paul is making such a big deal. He says, you are not ours. You are God's. You belong to him. Worship him, not us. Chapter 1, Paul is clear. We did not die for you. We did not save you. We did not make you our own. Christ did. You belong to him. But not all men are good like Paul. Some will take advantage of a church like this. Leaders who will come and use and abuse and destroy a church like the Corinthians. It's a warning both to the congregation to love and worship their God and not leaders. And this is a warning to leaders who would dare to take advantage of Christ's church and destroy it. And in verse 17, God threatens such a man. Paul says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. One of the ways that God describes himself is that he is a jealous God. And it may be strange for us to hear this, to hear God describe himself as a jealous God. You know, we are a very individualistic culture. Um, We value autonomy above all else. We don't like to you know, to have, to belong to anyone. But God's jealousy is not sinful. God's jealousy is holy. It expresses his commitment and his love to the people that he has redeemed with a very expensive price. And this holy jealousy is right here in verse 17 as God threatens to destroy anyone who would dare mess with the church of Christ. So here's the question, how can one destroy the temple of God? Here's a few ways. Teaching and tolerating false doctrine. Tolerance and allowance of sin within the church. 
abandonment of the gospel, leaving behind or being ashamed of the cross of Jesus. Using the church for personal gain, personal enrichment or glory and fame. Leading the church astray from the clear teachings of scripture. Leading the church away from Jesus. These are some of the ways that destroy the church. When we read the letters from Jesus to the seven churches, we find them in the three, first three chapters of Revelations. For all of these reasons, Jesus threatens to destroy the leadership of some churches unless they repent because they tolerated and promoted these things. Church, in this warning, there is so much comfort and hope. We are to find safety, peace, and comfort in a God who has such a high view of his people and who is so committed to his people that he will destroy those who would dare touch them. Christ is not indifferent to his church. He is not far off or distant from his people. He loves his church. He cares for his church. He sees the threats that are against his church. And he will defend and he will fight for his church because it belongs to him. Paul continues. And we're almost done. Almost done. A couple minutes. Last week, I went long. Let no one deceive him. Last potluck, I mean. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or, or, the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is a call for spiritual seeing and understanding. Paul once again tells us, if we have bought in into world's wisdom, into the world's way of doing things, if we are attracted to the natural and fleshly ways of operating and living out the life as a church, then we are deceiving ourselves. It is a false and worthless path to go down. And one of the most obvious ways we know, we can know that we are down this path is with if we are obsessed with men. So Paul says, let no one boast in men. Stop praising, stop worshiping, stop identifying with men. Paul says, Worship and praise and look to Jesus alone. 
And he finishes with verse 23, because you are Christ's. Church, you are Christ's. You belong to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder of your love and your commitment to the church. Father, we thank you that you are its defender. You are its protector. Lord, we thank you that you have redeemed us, that you have purchased us with the precious blood of your son, Jesus, that you have made us your own. Father, and we are just amazed at the fact that you would dwell among us, that you would dwell with us, that, Lord, it is pleasing for you to be with your people and to hear their praise and their worship of you, Father. We thank you for that. And, Lord, we just pray that those who do not know you, Lord, that just like Elisha prayed and the eyes of the servant were open, Father, we pray that today you would open up our eyes to see that your wisdom is far greater and better than the wisdom and the way of this world. And, Father, for those who do not know you, Lord, I pray that you would open up their eyes that they would come to know you, Father, that they would believe in Jesus and find safety in Christ. Let them see that being autonomous, being on their own, is not a safe place to be. The best place to be is in the arms of Christ, the King and Lord and Savior. Father, we thank you and once again for your word, that we get to hear your word preached to us every week, Father. We pray that you would continue to build us up, that you would protect us, and that you, Father, would sustain us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.